Please turn with me to Isaiah 6, chapter 1. And I'm going to ask you to please rise as you read the word of God together. Isaiah 6, chapter 1 through 9. Reading, in the, in, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with his tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your holiness. And we ask that um, you be with us now during this time, that your spirit will open our eyes, open our hearts to the glory and beauty of your word. Be with us now, Father. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A couple years ago, I used to have a coworker who was a bivocational pastor at the time. Uh, we, we quickly became friends, and during that time, something happened where he actually had to step down from his pastorate. Um, he did the right thing. He, he confessed to his leadership. In addition to that, he confessed to his wife about an immoral relationship. At the same time, I was actually taking my class at the Master's College. I was taking a biblical counseling class. Um, who was taught by, some of you may know, Kevin Kirby. He's actually the director of biblical counseling in Sonoma County. Uh, it's a great, great pastor, great teacher. And so, you know, during this time, I was taking my biblical counseling class, and I was meeting, uh, I was befriending this, this, this young pastor, uh, or former pastor, I guess you could say, um, during this difficult time in his life. Uh, to the least, I guess you could say, I, I, was, I was an amateur counselor at best, uh, and I sort of went through this very loose counseling process with him. Uh, Monday through Friday, we would actually take a walk for about 15 to 20 minutes. And we would talk about his situation. Uh, we would talk about theology. We would talk about reconciliation. Um, it was a, really a fruitful time for the both of us. Um, but about six months later, he fell again. And as a friend, as a coworker, I was... I was a little frustrated, but as, a, as an amateur counselor, I, I was doing my best to be patient. Um, so he, he admitted what he did, and maybe out of my own sinfulness, I said something along these lines. 
I said, I don't think you understand the consequences and depth of your sin. And the only way for you to understand your sin is to know and understand the holiness of God. At that time, I was just giving him books about the holiness of God. I was telling him to just listen to sermons on the holiness of God. You know, I truly believe that if or when we encounter the holiness of God, we will look at our own life in such a different way that we will begin to hate our sin. But we have to see God. In the first five chapters of Isaiah, it describes the spiritual failure of God's people. They failed to want to see God. If you read at the end of chapter 5, verse 30, this is what it says. And if one looks at the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. The people were unresponsive to the warnings and promises of God. Therefore, darkness overcame them. Maybe there's someone here this morning that is unresponsive to the warnings and promises of God. Maybe you've been overcome with darkness, but I want to tell you that there is hope, and we find it in the God of grace. Before we jump fully into our text this morning, let me give you a a brief background. The first uh, couple words there, in the year that King Uzziah died, we have to understand why these words are here. It's been noted that Isaiah was about 25 years old when Uzziah died. If you think about it, it's the only king Isaiah knew his entire life. Isaiah ru- or Uzziah ruled for 52 years, and we find that in 2 Chronicles 26. And you could turn there. I'm going to go just kind of give a brief uh, background on King Uzziah. Uh, he strengthened the land. He was a good king. In fact, he was one of Israel's greatest kings aside from David, of course. He's a, he was a great king over a divided kingdom, which was known as Judah. In 2 Chronicles 26.4, it says he did what was, what was right in the eyes of the Lord. King Uzziah began his reign rightly in the eyes of God. And again, just a, a brief rundown of what he did. He sought after God. He was victorious in battles. He built towers in Jerusalem and strengthened the city walls. He restored the military power of Judah to a standard almost as high as it had as it had been under David. For much of his reign, Uzziah was noted as a great and beloved king. But we see that it did not end well for Uzziah. In verses 15 through 16 we read, In Jerusalem he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners, to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God. The chapter concludes that Uzziah died as a leper, cut off from the house of the Lord. Essentially, he was an outcast. He died alone because of his pride and sin against God. This was a tragic ending to a once great king. And it was also a time of mourning for the nation. Which takes us back to our text today. It's presumed that Isaiah was looking for for comfort in a time of mourning. Therefore, he goes to the temple. 
There he encountered more than what he was looking for, which brings us to our first point. In the first part of this text, we see Isaiah's vision, and he sees the true king. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You see, the once great king was dead, but when Isaiah entered the temple, he saw another king, the ultimate king, the one who sits forever on the throne of Judah. Not an earthly king, but the king of the entire universe. One commentary put it, it was as if God said, Isaiah, Judah's king may fall, but there is one king who never falls. Judah's king may die, Judah's king may sin, but there is one king who does not sin, who is incorruptible, who is the everlasting king. It is the Lord, our God. And if we have any inkling in history, we know that kings arise and kings die. Various leaders come and various leaders go. Presidents come and presidents go. The Supreme Court may rule now, but there is only one king that rules supreme over heaven and on earth. And he reigns in the only court that matters. He is the only judge. And Isaiah saw this king. He saw the Lord sitting on the throne. Now, if you look closely, you see Lord spelled differently here. Normally, we, we see Lord in all capital letters or all uppercase letters. But the reason why you see Lord with the lowercase letter is actually is pretty significant. Let me just point this out to you. The reason for the difference in lettering is that there are two different Hebrew, Hebrew words that are used here. The lowercase Lord indicates Adonai, and Adonai means sovereign one. It's not the name of God, it's actually the title of God. It actually, it's actually the supreme title given to God in the Old Testament. Now the difference with the capital Lord is that it indicates Yahweh, which is the name of God. Let me read to you Psalm 8.1. It says, O Lord, capital Lord, our Lord, that's lowercase Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. The Jew is saying here, O Yahweh, our sovereign one, or Adonai. Again, Yahweh is God's name, but Adonai is his title. It's like if we were to refer to the president. His name is Barack Obama, but president is his title. So the title Adonai was reserved for God and God alone. And we're also reminded when Christ is called Lord in the New Testament, he's using the title only reserved for God, the supreme sovereign one over heaven and earth. Isaiah, in light of what just happened throughout Judah, saw the king sitting on the throne, the supreme sovereign one. For us, sometimes it takes a tragedy in our lives to see God. For most of us, it is during the darkest times in our life that we see God. And it is during our darkest hour we know and realize that God is the supreme sovereign one. Not only did Isaiah see the true king, he also saw what genuine worship looks like. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse two and three, excuse me. Now the seraphim, they're angelic beings, creatures connected to God. 
The word seraph literally means burning ones or, or to burn. Although they have the majestic job in worshiping God, they could not gaze directly at God. And let me just break down just the, the wings here are, are significant as well. Uh, the face. So they could not directly gaze in the, uh, at the face of God. They were created with special wings so that they could cover themselves not to look at God. Now, if you remember uh, in Exodus, when Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And in Exodus 33:19 and following, l- let me uh, just read to you what God's response is. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now I will be gracious to, you, to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory pass, passes by, by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Not only are the seraphim's face covered, but we also read that their feet are covered as well. Again, in Exodus, what happened when Moses saw the burning bush? Well, he wanted to go see it, but what was God's response? God tells him not to come closer and to take off his sandals because the place where Moses was standing was on holy ground. In the same way, although the seraphim were sinless angels, they could not freely be around a holy God. The third depiction here is that they were flying and with two he flew. Isaiah does not tell us how many uh, seraphims or other angels or burning angels, but we can safely suspect that there were quite a few. And the apostle John in Revelation tells us what he saw when he was looking into heaven. Revelation 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands there are millions of angels. And what they're doing is they're just worshiping God, sinless creatures, six wings, covering their feet and their eyes and their faces and, and flying around. If you could just imagine that picture in heaven. And all they're doing, the only thing that they can do around God is worship. Again, reading verse three now. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the middle of, the, of worship, we read, and we really hear these words of the seraphim calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The word holy really means separated or to be separate. You see, when God calls us as believers to be holy, he is saying to be separate from the world, to separate yourself from sin. The seraphim worshiping God indicates that this king is in fact separate from all others. The supreme sovereign one is like no other king that has ever lived. King Uzziah fell because of his sinfulness. But God will never fall because he is holy. Not only is God holy, he is holy, holy, holy. The repetition here is significant. The Old Testament Jew used this technique of repetition to indicate emphasis. 
You might also, when Jesus uses the repetition of words throughout the Gospels, what does he say? He says, truly, truly, I say to you. What Jesus is really emphasizing here is, it is true. The Apostle Paul, what does he say in Philippians 4? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Let me say it again, rejoice. I mean, I encourage you, when something is repeated in the Bible, to pay attention this, of course, is not the only place where the Bible speaks of God's holiness. In Psalm 29.2, it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Again, in Exodus 15.11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? And I believe this is the greatest attribute of God, his holiness. Yes, God is sovereign, God is omniscient, God is love, God is merciful, but it does not be compared because above all else, God's holiness defines his godness. No other threefold adjective appears in the Old Testament, and we see it here in our text. Only once in all of Scripture does a characteristic of God elevate to the third degree. And it's found here, holy, holy, holy. R.C. Sproul says, the Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. But it does say he is holy, 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 and that the whole earth is full of his glory. What we read next is astounding. In verse four, it says, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The literal meaning of this text is that it began to quake where Isaiah stood. For some of us who have lived in California long enough, we probably can say we've experienced an earthquake. Uh, now, if it's a strong earthquake, you might you know, feel the jolt, um, but also it might strike fear in, in some of us. And so what happened here was more like a, a God quake. I mean, in, in some commentaries, it would say Isaiah was actually just shaking where he said he was on the floor and he was weeping. And Isaiah would never be the same. You know, for some of us, we, not, we may not experience the same vision or body-shaking jolt as Isaiah, but there will be times, if it has not happened already, where God will shake us. I mean, our salvation story is a God quake. For some of us, we were once shaken by our sinfulness and our eyes were opened to the beauty of the gospel when we saw what Christ did on the cross. And so we see there's only one way to respond when you see the glory of God, when you see the holiness of God. And we find it in our next point, it's Isaiah's response. What shook the most was not the temple, but Isaiah. We know this because we read it in Isaiah's response. Verse five, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The first thing we see here is Isaiah sees himself. The word woe, when Isaiah says it here is an announcement of doom. It is right after Isaiah realizes God's holiness that he grasps his own sinfulness. 
Isaiah pronounces judgment upon himself. At this very moment, Isaiah saw the most unholy person himself. You see, some of us like to measure ourselves with others or we like to compare our lives and think we have a less sinful life. But when we compare ourselves to a holy, infinite God, we see true sinfulness and we are humbled. The text says, I am lost. But other, I, you know, I, I think other translations catch uh, uh, the full meaning of it. Some will say, I am ruined. But my favorite translation, it says, I am undone. The word undone emphasizes the impact of what has become of Isaiah. The word really means coming apart or, or to be unraveled. You know, for some of us, we may think we have it all together. We have all our eyes dotted and T's crossed. We may be a self-proclaimed perfectionist. We think we have it all together. But a true encounter with God unravels what we really think of ourselves. The most humbling encounter we will ever have in the Christian life is when we see God. Maybe not in a temple and not some mystical experience, but a real gospel-centered encounter where all we can say is that's all God's doing in my life. Isaiah saw his own sinfulness and he was lost. Sometimes God reveals our sinfulness little by little, but God revealed all of Isaiah's sinfulness. That's why he was lost. Not only does Isaiah see his own sinfulness, he understands the nation's sinfulness. Secondly, Isaiah sees God. Isaiah had a new and radical understanding of sin because he saw God. You know, there are many books uh, about sin out there, uh, really good ones. Let me, let me encourage you, church, to study sin. I know John Owen's Mortification of Sin is, is a popular uh, book on sin. Uh, not so that you, become, you could become a, a smarter sinner, but so that you can be aware of the power of sin in your life. You know, sin is really ugly, and I think we could all agree that we should really hate sin because it affects us in, in such a brutal, brutal way. John Owen calls sin as like a grave that is never satisfied. Sin leads to death. I mean, when you see God, it's like being educated on your own sinfulness. Job, at the end of his book, what does he say? He says, I, you know, I, I've heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. But this is what he says. God sees God, and then he despises himself and repents. The Apostle John, again, in the book of Revelation, he saw the risen Christ. And what happens? He fell at his feet as though dead. In the presence of God, we see, we see ourselves let me ask you, when was the last time that you were in the presence of God? When was the last time you opened your Bible and said, oh God, I, I want to see you? Let me warn you, do not be callous toward God. Seek him. And the only way to do that is through his word. So far we've seen in our text Isaiah's vision, Isaiah's response. Now we see Isaiah's transformation in verses five through seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal uh, 
that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah saw himself. Isaiah saw God. Isaiah saw his sinfulness. And what happens? You know, when I was a boy and I had done something wrong, and I knew my dad was coming home, I would just be in my room because I knew punishment awaited me. You know, I would hide with nowhere to go. I, was, I just knew I was going to be in trouble. Ever feel like that? Like you're in so much trouble that you just want to hide, that you don't want to show your face? That's how Isaiah felt at that moment. You see, God is the sovereign one. God is the king. God is holy, holy, holy. God is the righteous judge. God exercises righteous wrath towards sinners. But God is also a God of grace. And we find it here in verses 6 and 7. The sinfulness of Isaiah had to be touched by a holy object from God. The coal does not hurt Isaiah, but it heals him. In the, in the context of the gospel and, and the Bible itself, the burning coal really symbolizes what, the Christ, what Christ did for us on the cross. You see, Jesus went to the place of sacrifice on our behalf. He is the burnt offering. The message of the gospel is that Jesus came to save us, ransom his life for many, and rose from the dead in order that we can stand righteous before God. I mean, look at, look at verse 7. One more time here. It says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It was as if Christ on the cross said, Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It is finished. At that very moment, Isaiah no longer had to hide. He no longer had to look at himself and weep over his sinfulness. I, God I saw Isaiah's dis- distress and saved him from his sinfulness. You know, we're at this time where we're starting to discipline Piper. Um, I know she's little and you guys think she's sweet and, and cute, but uh, we do have to discipline her very lightly. Um, so, you know, we would tell her to go to her room and, you know, she, when she... When she knows she's done something wrong. And so she's just crying and weeping. Uh, you know, I just, you know, let her stay there for like, like a timeout for like, you know, three or five minutes. And so when I come in as a father, she's just weeping, her face is down. And then she looks up and, and she's like, you know, I'm sorry. I don't know if she knows what she's sorry about. She's not, she knows she's in trouble, but she goes, I'm sorry. And she's, you know, I love you, daddy. And this is sort of what's happening here. The king became a father. Just as Christ became a savior to the world. That is the God of grace. And Isaiah would never be the same. He was awakened to live for God. And that takes us to our last point this morning. You see Isaiah's calling. Immediately after Isaiah's transformation, transformation, he heard God's voice. Isaiah saw God's glory, saw the tr- true worship of God and his holiness, and he experienced genuine forgiveness through the burning coal. 
Now, for the first time, he heard the voice of God. And God asked two questions here. He says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? You see, when we are truly saved, truly regenerate, our gratitude compels us to serve the God that saves us. I talked about this a couple months ago in Romans 12. Answering the call of God is like saying, in light of all you did for me, I want to die to myself, be committed to you, and the only logical thing to do is give myself through service. That's what Isaiah is doing. Now, it might look different for all of us depending on the context, but the only thing Isaiah could do was respond in obedience to God, no matter what the task, and that is what Isaiah did. You see, even though Isaiah was unraveled moments earlier, God put him together again. God completely humbled Isaiah before he sent him to do ministry. Some of us, we need to be completely humbled by God in order for us to serve, whether we serve in the home, serve at church, serve in the workplace. But the story does not end here. You know, Isaiah's calling was not to evangelize and plant churches. Millions would not be saved under his ministry. Isaiah was not going to establish a great following. If you read in the rest of the book, Isaiah's ministry was a ministry of judgment on the people. Isaiah was essentially called to minister to people with hard hearts. The people would never listen Never understand. When God saves, we should be eager to serve no matter what the commission is. Whatever the task, whatever the outcome, when God God calls, we must go. Let me just have some concluding thoughts. We find this pattern throughout the Bible. This story alone is really a pattern throughout history. God appears, people quake in terror, God forgives, God sends. You know, my hope and prayer is that God awakens us from the dead this morning, that we see our sinfulness in light of the cross. If you're here today and you've never seen God, I plead with you to repent and to believe in the gospel. It's been said multiple times by different pastors But the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We are all sinners in need of a savior. Our hope, our only hope is in the God of grace. May he transform us today. Let us pray. Father, 30 minutes doesn't do justice to this text. Lord, for you are holy, holy, holy God. And so we stand before you. Maybe in judgment, but it is because of the gospel that that we could stand before you as righteous The Bible says he made the one who did not know sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Lord, I, I ask that you will just perform a God quake in our lives, that you will shake us, that you would help us to see how ugly sin is and that we cling to you and we cling to, to, to your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. All these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen.